In the name of Jesus, amen. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean by this? How can our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, thousands of years ago, God had given the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. And over the years, the Jews changed the meaning. They minimized the law. They redefined the law. They, in fact, made it easier and shallow and superficial. And they actually watered down God's word. They watered down the law of God. They relaxed the commandments of God. Now, some of you might be wondering or ask me, why are you saying that they, this group of people, watered down God's word? Because aren't they the ones who added 613 rules on top of the Ten Commandments? 248 of what you should do, uh, 365 of what you shouldn't do. They were the ones who counted their steps. They, they counted the time. They limited their movement on the Sabbath. They, um, they tithed the exact amounts that they were supposed to tithe and so on and so forth. So how is it that they are relaxing God's law if they are adding more to the commandments, more to the word? These people did more good works than any other person. Well, for them, the Ten Commandments... And the 613 other laws added to them were only about what you should and what you shouldn't do with your hand. But not one of them was about what you should and shouldn't do in your heart. They had hundreds of external works, but not one internal work of the heart. The Pharisees and the scribes They had external, the outward appearance of righteousness. But inwardly, in the heart, in the very soul, they were completely unrighteous. They had no good works. This is why Jesus condemns them so often. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says these words. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Again, Jesus says, these people honor me. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far away from me. So that is their problem. They did a bunch of things that looked good to others, but in reality, they were not good. By adding 613 laws, they actually weakened the law of God. So this is what Jesus is set to do here today, precisely is to preach the actual law of God in its entirety. To preach the whole thing. Not cutting it up or not minimizing it or just one layer of it, but to preach the whole thing. He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets and neither did he come to add to the law. 
So what Jesus is doing here today, what you heard from his mouth here in, in the gospel lesson, is not that he came to change the law or add to it or expand it or redefine the law or give his own interpretation of the law. He came simply to state the full definition of the law. He gives us the entire picture of the law in a full and clear definition of works. Jesus uses one commandment for, as an example here. He says, he uses the commandment that most people think they have kept, that the majority of human beings have said, have said well, I've kept at least that one, which is the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. Uh, he says, you, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Then in, Jesus continues with the sixth commandment which is you shall not commit adultery, and he follows with these verses. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And the same thing goes for each of the Ten Commandments. You can go through the first, the second, third, fourth, fifth, all the way to the Tenth Commandment with the same, the, the same teaching. That it requires not only the outward acts of the hands, but the internal movements and desires of the heart. That's the point. So all Jesus is doing here today is giving a full and clear preaching of God's law. And the main point is that the law requires not only what we do with our hands and our mouth, but also the very thoughts and the intentions and, and the very desires of your heart, of your gut. Jesus teaches us that there is a way to break the commandments, that there is a way to murder someone to commit adultery without using your hands, without even touching the person, simply in your thoughts and in your heart. You can break God's law without moving a finger. And your murder, anger, insults, holding grudges, lust of the heart makes you just as guilty before God as the ones who actually do this, who actually commit these things with their hands. Now, <clears throat> what a lot of people do is they immediately jump to comparing sins and they'll say something like, well, murder is obviously worse than insulting somebody because if you murder somebody, they can't come back from it. An insult maybe damages their pride or something uh, like that. And we say, well, yes, murder does cause more damage to someone else than an insult. Murder is significantly more damaging than an insult. But the point, the point here is that insults don't break God's law any less 
than murder does, does it? Because he commanded not even that, not even to insult your brother. Although it causes less damage, it's not less uh, uh, damning before God. Certain sins cause more damage to others and to ourselves, that's true, but it doesn't follow that certain sins are more or less damnable than others. And that's what Jesus is telling us here, that even the sins of the heart, uh, the, the sins of the heart and the words of the mouth make you liable to the judgment of fire. In fact, all sins are equally damnable before the face of God, regardless of how much damage they cause your neighbor, or if they cause any damage at all. This, this is simply the preaching of the law. This is what the law is. From the beginning, God's intention in the fifth commandment was to condemn not only the outward sin of murder, but also the inward sin of murder in the heart. That is anger. That is an unrighteous anger. This is what Jesus means when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. If you're earning your way to heaven and you have your life put together externally and everything looks good, this is a righteousness that falls short. It's not good enough. If you're going to earn your way to heaven, you must do better than that. You don't need to appear righteous. You need to be righteous. That's the law. You don't need to look perfect. You need to be perfect. Your very heart and soul must be without sin, without stain, without blemish, undefiled in every way. Anything less is not good enough. It simply is not good enough. It is trash before the Lord. That is the full preaching of the law. The preaching of the law which goes down and extends down deep into your heart and accuses and points fingers there in your very soul, to the very blemishes of your soul. <clears throat> now, now that we've heard the fullest and clearest preaching of the law, the typical response to this is this. Okay, but then who can do this? This is simply impossible. This isn't even fair. Why would God command us to do things that he knows we are completely incapable of doing? Why would he tell us to control, to have under control, to have self-control of your thoughts and your desires of your heart? Can you control that? Can you control your, those very things, your dreams, the things in your heart? Why, why would he command that? If he knows you can't do it. After all, which one of you haven't at one point been unreason unreasonably angry at someone? Or insulted someone out loud? Or under your breath? Or in your heart? Or held a grudge in your heart? Men, which of you haven't at one point looked at a woman indecently and with lust? or spoken crudely about sex, or joked about the intimacy, the, the great and good intimacy that God gives to a husband and a wife and made light of it. Women, which of you haven't at one point spoken poorly of someone else, even if it was true, or listened to gossip, or passed it on, 
or even thought of it, or stretch the truth by making yourself look better. Children, which of you haven't at one point listened to your parents or yelled at them or lied or been disobedient? We can go on and on and on for years here through each and every commandment and whatever condemns you condemns me also. And if you're being 100% honest with yourself, if you're just being honest, you're going to see that not one of us has even kept one commandment in its entirety. Not one. Not even the fifth commandment. You have kept in its fullness and its entirety. So why would God command us to do something that he knows we cannot do? It's simply impossible. And that's precisely the point. God's chief and main purpose in giving us the Ten Commandments is not to show you that you can keep the law, but precisely to show you that you cannot keep the law. The law does a lot of things, but the the chief use, the main function of the law is to show you that you are incapable of fully keeping the law of God. And anyone who thinks that they can keep the law of God is under a delusion, is under a curse, as the scriptures say. So why does God want us to see that we can't keep the law? I'll give you an analogy here of how this works. Imagine there's a star quarterback for the, his high school team, his high school football team, and uh, it's the penultimate game, the game before the state championship, and he gets tackled, and he's in a lot of pain, and they carry him off in a stretcher. And he goes to the sidelines, and um, then later that night, they take him to the hospital, and the doctor comes in and runs tests, and then he comes back after a while, and he says, look, Son, I got the x-rays, your collarbone is broken, and you can't play, and the whole season is done. So the championship game, you're out of it. You can't play it, simply. And then the kid says, "Uh, yes, I can play, and I'm going to play. This This means everything to me. I'm going to play. I've had worse injuries before. I need to play this game. Just give me painkillers and I'll go out and play. Clear me to play, and I'll play. And the kid insists on playing. So then the doctor says, okay, um, fine. Just do something for me real quick, and then I'll clear you to play. So he says, "Uh, do this with your arm, right? Move your arm this way. And the kid tries it, and he screams in pain, and he can't do it. That, that is a perfectly good and reasonable thing to ask any normal human being to do, to just move your arm in this motion and I'll clear you. And the kid tries it and he can't do it. He's, in, he's screaming in pain. Okay, now let me ask you this. Did the doctor know that the kid couldn't do that with his arm before then? Yes. Then why did he tell him to do it? To convince the kid that his collarbone was broken to convince the the, the kid that he doesn't need a quick fix. He needs real help. He needs treatment 
He needs surgery. He needs medicine. He needs therapy, so on and so forth. The kid refused to believe that his collarbone was broken until he saw what? That he could not do it. Do you see this? Well, this is the chief reason Jesus preaches the law in the, the, fu- the fullness of the law, so that you would know the reality of your own condition. Most people, if you walk up to any person randomly in the world or on the street, you're going to ask, uh, do you feel sinful? And they will say no. Are you a sinner? Are you a poor, miserable sinner? No, I don't really feel that way. Uh, most people don't feel as sinful as they actually are. Most people think that they're fine or that they're good with God. I'm good with him. I feel fine. My emotions are okay. I don't feel guilt. So I must be okay with God. So Jesus comes along and then gives the simple, easy, perfectly reasonable command. Just a simple command. And he says, don't commit adultery. Just don't do it. Don't even look at a woman with lust in your heart. He says, don't lie, ever. Don't ever lie, don't, just say the truth. Don't murder, don't insult people, don't curse, don't swear, don't deceive, don't covet, don't be unhappy or discontent. These are perfectly reasonable things to ask. And when you try to do it, you see that you can't even do that. And you will then know how poor and miserable of a sinner you indeed are. The veil is off and you're not good. You're not good enough for God or for heaven. Your works cannot save you. If this is the standard for getting into heaven, which it is, then you are lost and condemned. And when you realize this finally about yourself, then finally, you will know that you truly need a Savior. Jesus preaches this law to you today to show you that you are broken to such a degree that you do, in fact, actually need Him. You don't need a Savior to help you correct your mistakes or your weaknesses or your errors. You need a Savior to save you from the deep and most profound corruption of your soul and heart. And that means that you do need him. You do need his bleeding and his suffering and his dying. You need his cross every single day. You need all of his forgiveness. You need his salvation, his righteousness, his perfect and holy obedience. You need every ounce of it. You need Jesus to redeem you with his holy and precious blood. And he does this not by removing the law, but by fulfilling the law for you through his obedience and his death. He saves you not by ignoring or dismissing your sins, but by forgiving your sins. He satisfies the law's demands and suffered its punishments for all. And those who put their trust in him will not be put to shame. There is not one sin that the Lord has not opened up his veins for and bled out and died for. You cannot keep the law. You cannot do it yourself. You need a savior. You need someone to come here and rescue you and redeem you and save you and do everything necessary for your salvation. And the savior that you need so much is the savior that you already have. God washed away all of your sins in baptism. All of them. 
He drowned them in a flood of his blood, and he declared you righteous with his word, and he feeds you his body and his blood for your forgiveness, and he fills you with a righteousness that far exceeds that of the scribes or of the Pharisees or anyone else in this world. You have the righteousness of Christ, of Christ Jesus the Lord himself, who made full satisfaction for all of your sins. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.